This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, the Smart Brick Edition. It's Wednesday, August 31st, 2016. On today's show, Lo and Behold, Reveries of a Connected World, is the latest documentary from Werner Herzog. The film is a poetic meditation on how the internet has insinuated itself into our lives, and beyond that, into our very selves. And then Michelangelo's David is the shining mascot of the Renaissance, so says Sam Anderson in his wonderful New York Times piece. It represents a perfection of the human form, but has it been mistaken for a symbol of art's permanence when it too is likely to decay and one day disappear? We'll discuss this wonderful essay with its author, Sam Anderson. And finally, what does it take to make a successful children's book? Slate staged a competition between its editors to find out. We discussed the amusing results with one of its non-winners, Laura Bennett. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi. Correction, though, Laura was one of the winners. I sort of felt like nobody won that competition, but I, am I? Well, no, <laughs> like okay. Putting if, a negative if we're, spin if on we're it? taking as a given that everybody failed, which is probably the more accurate way to conclude, then that's a fine way to describe her. It, it had a very distinct don't quit your day job vibe, as indicated <laughs> by the repeated use of the phrase don't quit your day job on the part of the judges. I think but, there was scant risk of that. But yes, okay, fair enough. Non-winner Laura Bennett will join <laughs> non-winner Julia Turner to discuss. <laughs> we'll get there. And um, of course, we're joined by Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. A winner in all respects. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Stephen. Hey, um, Julia, before we uh, uh, continue, do we have any business to attend to we do we're doing another live show gang on october 13th that's a thursday in los angeles california or more accurately at the arrow theater in santa monica those of you who were dismayed that we were on the east side last time we came to la be dismayed no more now we are coming to the west side uh to a very cool theater uh so you can sign up for those tickets at slate.com slash live and we should announce that we will be joined there by I think all of our podcast crush at this point, or certainly Dana's and mine, Karina Longworth, who does the wonderful You Must Remember This podcast also on the Panoply Network uh, and is a 
great podcastress and film thinker. Uh, so we will no doubt have fun with her there, too. And then I also need to tell our listeners about our Slate Plus segment today. We're going to be answering another listener question, this time about the first or best movie we saw that left us feeling that our minds had been completely blown. And I have a couple that spring instantly to mind. So we will compare notes on that in our Slate Plus segment. Uh, Again, those segments are available to Slate Plus members who support uh, Slate and the journalism that we do. You can sign up to become a member and hear that segment and others like it at slate.com slash culture plus. All right, Steve, let's commence. Thanks, Julia. All right, digging in, in Lo and Behold, Reveries of a Connected World, the filmmaker Werner Herzog traces the rise of the internet from curiosity to digital tool to a technology so ubiquitous, so integrated into our lives, it has become a part of who we are. Along the way, he interviews its pioneers, its current utopian evangelists, as well as its addicts and its exiles. The result is a wide-ranging and poetic meditation on how human and digital boundaries have melted and continue to melt into one another. It's uh, such an impressionistic movie that we've actually taken clips from various parts of the movie and blended them into a little melange just for you. But anyway, take a listen. It is not uncommon that in South Korea, teenage video gamers put on diapers. This way, they avoid losing points by going to the bathroom. Will our children's children's children need the companionship of humans? Uh, Or will they have evolved in a world where that's not important? It sounds awful, doesn't it? But maybe it'll be fine. Maybe the companionship of an intelligent internet will be sufficient. Who am I to say? I can not only imagine artificial intelligence evolving spontaneously on the internet, but I can't tell you that it hasn't happened already. Dana, let me start with you. Um, I'm just curious to know what you made of the movie. I think um, it's extremely timely, but I think people are finding it slightly diffuse, uh, meditative maybe to a fault. What did you make of it? Well, I mean, I'm really glad we saw it. I was the one who pushed for us to see it because I'm always interested in the next thing that Werner Herzog is doing, whatever it is. I would say that this is not, you know, among his most focused and maybe uh, cohesive documentaries. It's not, it's no Grizzly Man. It's no Cave of Forgotten Dreams. It's not one of his documentaries that really hones in and focuses on one specific subject and, you know, and digs very deep. Rather, it's, as you say, very diffuse. It's divided into 10 chapters. It's very much a filmed essay, I think, rather than a documentary. So if you go in, Mm -hmm. as I to some extent did, because of previews, expecting a history of the internet or a kind of genealogy or that he was going to march us chronologically through um, the developments, you know, that brought this this technology about that isn't really what happens although he the first vignette does sort of take place at the the, the place where the internet began from there he sort of he, he skips around skipping over some things I think that it's very hard to think through the internet without thinking about like pornography and social media were the two that most obviously popped to Did mind this movie me. even say the word Facebook I feel like the word Facebook might not have even been in it Mm-mm. That's very no, possible. Yeah. And he, well, he also was not particularly interested in Silicon Valley millionaires. I mean, he talks to Elon Musk at one point, but he talks to Elon Musk because he's interested in, you know, his, as you say, his utopian ideas about space travel and how he's chosen to spend his money. He's not particularly interested in, you know, the source of Internet money. Mm-hmm. Julia, you could argue that the argument of the movie is that the Internet isn't a discrete and bounded thing, that it's diffuse. It is itself kind of poetically wended its way into our lives um, in, a, in a virtual way. It really has, it, it transcends the objects that convey it. It's really not about computers or screens anymore. anymore. It's a way of being in the world. And so to do justice to it, you have to make a movie that is itself not 
uh, cohesive in any traditional way. Uh, any faith in that argument? That's one way to argue about it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> everything about this documentary seems contrived to make me despise it. Like, I, I already am a little itchy about documentaries, as our regular listeners will know, because they put my little journalism bells on alert, and I can't tell what the form is and whether it's trying to be journalism and how, you know, candid or informative it's being about its sources. So I tend to have itchy responses to them. Uh, I tend to dislike it when people are uh, mystical or scaremongery about uh, technology. And... Um, I tend to like it when things are very economical focused and tight. And this movie checks all of the boxes of reasons for me not to really like it. And yet I found it to be very pleasant company. It's it's the thing that I found useful about it. And the thing that seems to me like it's most interesting and perhaps undervalued observation about technology and how it changes us is that it happens in such a slow, creeping, sideways, unpredictable way. And it happens through all of these atomized interactions with the, you know, the geeks who are on the absolute frontier, who are making soccer playing robots that hope to best the World Cup champions by 2050, and who describe themselves as, you know, one of whom very poignantly describes himself as loving Robot 8, the robot that's particularly good at soccer, (laughs) you know, in like one of the film's most uh, heartbreakingly sweet and wry moments. This here is Robot 8. Um, It's very identifiable because its pattern includes four green dots on top, and it's one of our favorites, actually. (laughs) Beautiful. Do you love it? Yes, we do. We do love Robot 8. (laughs) You know, and they also, the film also takes us to encounter these bunch of people who believe themselves to be suffering from electromagnetic radiation from internet waves and have brought themselves to this remote area that's a listening post for extraterrestrial signals where it's basically a cell phone-free zone uh, and they speak with moving terror about their hypochondria slash real disease as they would have it. you you get the sense of these tiny little individual interactions with this web of interconnectedness that the internet is uh, and and the ways in which there's no one in charge. There's no one mm-hmm. deciding how this thing evolves or how it interacts with us or how really it's regulated or thought about. And that the change is happening so fast and will in the future be so poorly understood. One of the folks that Herzog speaks to mentions that this will come to be seen as the dark ages of the internet because our practices for record keeping around digital change are at their infancy and are non-existent and you know are kind of impossible to track so this notion of pausing and taking a moment to just explore how the internet feels right now episodically seemed more useful than I would have anticipated based on the precy of this film and its structure. Mm, uh, interesting. You know, I always think in the face of, um, you know, uh, technophobia or technophilia, I think it's always important to ask, um, could the language that we're currently using for a new technology, could it once have been applied to the printing press, right? Because, you know, if you think about it, the printing press completely revolutionized what it was to be a human being. 
I mean, you know, the 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 idea that you could mass produce print hasn't been with us that long, even in cultural terms, much less evolutionary terms. And yet it's just inconceivable to think about what a human being is minus the ability to sit alone and read a mass produced book. And surely at the time that could have been um, perceived or experienced as a kind of alienation from more face-to-face intimate or um, interactions or oral traditions. It was going to destroy local and folk culture. I mean, if, if, and, and, you know, I mean, I don't think anyone would make that argument about books today. So I think just as a way of putting into perspective um, how extraordinary, but then how in a kind of blessed way banal technology becomes um, when it integrates itself into who we are um, and just becomes a, a component of how we perceive ourselves um, you know as human beings it's just important to remember that that initially the language is going to be overblown and over time it something just becomes an integrated tool without which human beings you know, couldn't experience the world anymore in some way. What I disliked most about the movie is that there was very little in between the total utopia of of the West Coasters who most believe in the in the poss- you know redemptive possibilities of the internet and the total paranoia of the people who f- feel like in one way or another they've been destroyed by it. And in between that is a kind of gigantic blank space. And what I most liked about the movie was this twenty second clip. Uh, of a woman who's been otherwise discussing the possible effects of sunspots on the um, electric and information grid. In other words, once every several hundred years, there's a magnificent solar event um, whose effects are sufficiently felt on Earth that it would probably knock you know, out our electrical grids and, and bring down the internet and all of our... And this is, this is a very, you know, it's a real enough possibility that we have to consider it. In the midst of all that, she's just, she's essentially asked to respond to this idea that we're going to populate Mars, which uh, Elon Musk is currently obsessed with, that, that we would off-planet ourselves Blade Runner style and establish a human community elsewhere. And she just has the one, inc- like, incredibly sensible terrestrial, you know, pragmatic response to that, which is that, you know, humanity's problem is not that we're not a multi-planetary species. The problem is that we're fucking destroying this planet, the one that we've been deeded either by nature or, you know, the deity. And nothing about that tendency, our tendency to, you know, overconsume uh, and destroy um, and famish ourselves in the midst of plenty. Nothing about that is going to go away by building a rocket ship and going and planting corn on the surface of Mars. Um, and and all of a sudden, you hear the voice of a pragmatist humanist pointing out um, how some things about our condition seem to transcend, or uh, apparently will transcend any technological development whatsoever. And I just thought, it was striking how much that voice was missing uh, in the film. Well, also in the big middle between the utopians and the paranoiacs, that's where Facebook is, right? That's just like the mundanity of the internet. People... And that's exactly what Herzog is not interested in in yeah. this movie, right? Yeah. Which there's been a lot written about that. I didn't mind the dalliance at the fringe. Uh, 
I have to tell you guys, until Dana mentioned the Cave of Forgotten Dreams, which I have seen and which we did discuss on this podcast, I was under the impression that I had never seen a Werner Herzog movie. I don't know how that happened. I realized that it's a semi-regular occurrence for me to admit to some gaping, horrifying lacuna in my in my cultural knowledge <laughs> for a person who's been a host on this show for eight years. But I think that that was another possible title for this show, right? Gaping Horrible Lacuna? <laughs> Uh, exactly. Well, in we any went event, with culture gap fest. <laughs> um, I you have to see Grizzly Man, if if only one, Julie. That's one of the best movies of the century. Wouldn't I, you agree so far, Stephen? Grizzly Man. Uh, here we go. Gaping horrible lacuna. Never seen it. <laughs> oh my god, I'm leaving. But I've Cle- seen, clean out your desks. But, but f you all, because I've seen Aguirre, Wrath of God, and uh, and Nosferatu, and um, and Fitzcarraldo. So. All at once on three screens simultaneously. <laughs> yes, exactly. While arti- day trading. An artificially intelligent brain from Mars. Um, anyway, so I would be curious for you guys to put this a little bit more in the context of him as a documentarian. I mean, I, you know, I, it's not through any distaste or expected distaste or any anything. And I, I remember liking a lot about that Cave of Forgotten Dreams movie. And then I went somewhere very weird at the end with alligators. The baby albino alligators. Yeah, that I remember just being befuddled by. Um, but, you know, this, I, the, the specificity and sure handedness of the interlocutor in this was all of the pleasure of it. I think you're right that it felt like an essay. Um, and just like this very specific person with a really interesting eye for characters and a very kind of ruthless and empathetic at the same time eye for human moments. I mean, we don't spend very much time with any of these people. All of these vignettes are incredibly economical. And sometimes the framing of of the interviewees has something that's a little bit pitiless about it, even even if the questions are kind. And I think his way of interviewing people is kind, if sometimes slightly um, uh, circuitous, right? I mean, he's Herzog, so he'll come up with something in the middle of this conversation with scientists, like, does the internet dream of itself? And everyone's a little (laughs) bit thrown, but it makes them answer in an an unexpected way. There is one family that he interviews, though. Remember the family that thinks the internet is evil? And the reason they think the internet is evil is because one of their daughters, a teenage girl was killed in a car accident and photos of her decapitated or near decapitated body were leaked onto the internet and it was this horrible thing for the whole family and now I don't know whether it's implied that none of that family ever uses the internet but they sort of speak about it as if it's this malevolent being or something like that it's yeah the fascinating mother calls interview. it the antichrist yeah um, but it's framed in a strange way. I don't know if you all noticed that he has the camera pulled away from this table that the family's sitting at. It's The table, I think, has been set for some kind of memorial to the girl who died. And so you're looking at these giant plates of pastries and croissants the entire time they're talking about this story. And I thought it was a strange way of framing it that sort of added some element of humor that seemed kind of ghastly Inappropriate. and un- unfitting. Mm-hmm. I... At, the, at the same time, let me defend, sorry, Julia, defend him quickly. He also says that he refuses to show any uh, photo of her even when she was alive out of respect for her image oh absolutely um, i mean i don't think it was itself. and then he, but it was, I it thought was a strange one the, no no, no absolutely no i completely agree that the 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 the, the, the chocolat piled high in the new, in in the um in the foreground was a little odd but then but then he does something genuinely lovely which is he says in lieu of um of uh, disseminating her image uh, I'm going to show you a corner of the house that she especially loved. And he just has this shot of a piano in a small living room. He doesn't even say that she used to play the piano. It's heavily implied that she did. And, and there was a, I thought that that was a really lovely touch. Yeah, I, that, I don't know. To me, that it didn't seem heartless, but it also didn't seem 
it it didn't allow its empathy to become baggy or treacly. And it just, yeah, you I know, agree. I mean, this again, this is like a sky is blue comment, but it uh, the the combination of empathy and pitilessness, which is a weird sounding combination, but I think I think it's there made me feel like, okay, I got to take this gaping horrible lacuna and start to stitch it closed because this is this is clearly such an interesting brain and the the moment to moment surprises and delights of the conversations were kept me interested enough that the overall shapelessness of the movie didn't bother me and i i I will say that that dream the internet dream of itself the final third where it gets super theoretical about artificial intelligence i didn't i found that less appealing it was a little too theoretical i did like the part where it apocalyptically suggested that the sun was going to wipe us all out sometime in the next 150 <laughs> years. That was mostly because that scientist you mentioned, Steve, was like just a textbook awesome modern scientist. Oh, yeah, she was the, like the tattooed yes. physicist. Bad, yeah, she's, badass, she's like badass. tattooed yeah. astrophysicist. Um, I just like wanted her to be the star of next summer's blockbuster immediately. Yeah. Uh, she could uh, single-handedly save us from the next solar flare. Seems like she's working on it. I feel good about it. All right. Well, the movie is Lo and Behold, Reveries of a Connected World by Werner Herzog, sort of kind of about the internet um, and all related things. Go check it out. We'd love to hear what you thought about it. It's the kind of movie that will take time to make up one's mind about. And uh, other voices are very welcome in that regard. Facebook.com slash Culture Fest. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. All right, moving on. Um, David's Ankles, How Imperfections Could Bring Down the World's Most Perfect Statue is a reported essay in the Sunday Times magazine from last week. Uh, As a way of getting into the segment, the best thing for me to do is to quote from it. Uh, It's an extraordinary piece of writing, as we'll see. We are conditioned to believe that art is safe beyond the reach of the grimy world. We don't hang the Mona Lisa next to an archery range. We put her in a fortress, walls, checkpoints, lasers, guards, bulletproof glass. There are scholars, textbooks, posters, a whole collective mythology suggesting that the work will live forever. But safety is largely an illusion. Permanence is a fiction. Empires hemorrhage wealth, bombs fall on cities, religious radicals decimate ancient temples. Destruction happens in any number of ways for any number of reasons at any number of speeds. And it will happen and no amount of reverence will stop it. Um, That's uh, Sam Anderson. Sam, um, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so great to be back. Uh, Sam, the point that you're uh, leading up to with that uh, wonderful paragraph is that the David is thought of as a kind of model of the perfection of the human, possible perfection of the human form, and as permanent a work of art as maybe we have. But as you go on to point out, that's that's an illusion. It too will eventually not exist. And one point of current vulnerability is David's ankles, which are cracked. Um, that's the point of departure for the essay, but actually it's quite a personal piece of writing. So why don't we begin by um, you telling us when you first saw Michelangelo's David and what you felt about it when you saw it. Yeah, sure. Um, have you guys ever seen it, by the way? Can I ask that? Uh, I saw the replica outside and then didn't oh, brave the line to go, go in. in and see the I did not thing. mistake. 
I did not mistake the replica for the actual statue as the tourist does in the lead of your piece, but I uh, could not. I, to, in my defense, I was 11 and my family was tired and I was not the boss <laughs> of that train. But I didn't okay. go, go okay. and see it. And the Fair one enough. time I've ever been to Florence was also with my family in the week between Christmas and New Year's, which is a terrible time to go to Florence because everything is closed. So we didn't go to the mm. Uffizi. We didn't go to the Academia. We, we essentially didn't see any of the famous art in Florence, just the outside of the buildings. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, I have seen it. I, I've, seen the, I've seen the original, but that's because, and I saw it when I was 11, but that's because when I was 11, it was the 1950s and it was very easy to get in without it. <laughs> well, so the David is such an, it's such an interesting um, piece to me because it occupies this kind of upper stratosphere of truly iconic art, like art that is so familiar, it's just swimming around in everybody's bloodstream all the time. You know, it's up there with the Mona Lisa and Starry Night and uh, The Scream and these kinds of things that you've seen images of so many times in so many places that it's completely unremarkable and uninteresting anymore. And so when I first saw the David, I was on this kind of classic uh, post-college or just about post-college grand tour of Europe, backpacking, shoestring budget, 8 million cities in six weeks. And so we were seeing all of this great art. We were seeing Van Gogh and we were seeing the Mona Lisa. And some of it was profoundly disappointing after a kind of lifelong buildup of expecting to have your soul touched by a masterpiece. Um, and that David was different. And it really stood out from all the rest because I walked into the museum, I was 20 years old, and turned the corner and there was this thing, this object that was almost 20 feet tall. He's 17 feet tall, which I had no idea about. I, I always just assumed it was the size of a human. And to see a piece of stone on that scale and a piece of stone that is as, I mean, a, the language kind of fails you here, that is so beautifully carved that creates such a perfect illusion of a human body. The proportions are just, I mean, everything that is kind of the gut assessment of an object that you have as a human, when you stand in front of the David, it's just like in awe at the perfection of this object. And it's literally unbelievable that a human being was able to take a piece of stone and turn it into this smooth, perfect thing. So I was blown away, and I stood there for a very, very long time, having sort of soaring, transcendental religious feelings. Mm -hmm. I think among the amazing things about the essay is the backstory of the creation of it, which we'll get into. It was itself incredible. But setting that aside for one second, um, you know, this is this is as physically present a work of art as you say as you can imagine. It's it's large, it's public, and it's three-dimensional. A remarkable aspect of your essay is that it is a has been a projection of your inner life all along. What happened mm -hmm. to the David in your imagination as you grew older? Well, he always kind of stood there as this shining figure on a pedestal for me. Um, you know, I was, as I said, I was 20 years old. I was ambitious in a way that 20-year-olds often are. I wanted to be a great writer. I actually wanted to be a great writer like Dostoevsky, who was one of my great heroes. I was very pretentious and would walk around my suburban town reading the Brothers Karamazov as I like walked to school and stuff. Um, and, and I wanted to live in a world of art that felt like that, that felt like that feeling of when I stood in front of the David, that felt so deeply 
human and true and kind of idealized. I had this idealized image of, of what my life could be. And then, uh, as happens, you grow up and you experience failure and you experience disappointment and you experience the, the real limits of yourself and you learn that you are a human among humans, as Dostoevsky once said, which is one of my favorite phrases. And I kind of abandoned that that perfect ideal in a way. And so the David in my mind started to change. And I also started, you mentioned the compromised history of the David. I started to actually learn his history. And so when I returned to Florence many years later, I actually knew how this statue had come to be. And I actually knew that it was really riddled with faults and imperfections that the 20-year-old version of myself never even considered were possible. Tell us a little bit about that story. I I hadn't encountered it at all uh, until I read it in your piece, and you do a beautiful job laying out just the sheer improbability of uh, the sculpture's construction. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating story. So the David was originally commissioned uh, before Michelangelo was born in the 1400s. And this was a time when much of Italy, but Florence in particular, is kind of a... Um, was in a precarious state. It was this, this little place um, that was being tossed around in the political winds, and they wanted a giant, impressive marble statue to inspire the citizenry and terrify the enemies and all of this. So they commissioned this gigantic monolith of marble um, to be the biblical figure of David, the kind of underdog who defeats the giant, and he would be the symbol of Florence. And they hired another sculptor to do it, and he went out to the quarries to pick out the stone, and he picked a really bad block. Um, Everyone was kind of in over their heads. Nobody had ever taken a block this size from the quarries of Carrara uh, since ancient Rome. So, I mean, it's interesting because I tend to think of I think we all do to an extent. You think of history as this linear thing, this this progression. But in fact, a thousand years after ancient Rome in Renaissance Florence, they had forgotten all of this technology and all of these ways of dealing with stone that the ancient Romans had. And so they really didn't know what they were doing. So we picked a really bad block. It was really flawed. It was it had all kinds of um, veins, ugly veins going through it, and it was pocked with holes and. Then he kind of had to do a quick whittling down carving, and he did a very bad job. He left a big hole in the middle. So by the time this block got back to Florence, and it was this huge civic investment at that point, when it got back, everybody looked at it and said, wow, it's, it's a terrible piece of stone, and it's ruined. And so it just sat in the middle of Florence behind the church in a workyard for decades, um, abandoned, uh, until they decided at a later historic moment to revived the project. Michelangelo got the project. He was a very young man at the time. And this is one of the miracles of Michelangelo, that he was able to take this ruined block, which everybody called the giant, and he was able to turn it into what we know today as the David. So, Sam, you describe the um, Michelangelo's process of essentially saving the giant, right? Turning this flawed, holy, veiny piece of rock into this beautiful, perfect statue of a man. Can you talk about the the, the flaws that remain in the statue itself and the, the fears about, about earthquakes in Florence taking the statue down? Yeah, this was one of the things that kind of catalyzed my desire to write about the David. He was always rattling around in the back of my mind and 
Don't yeah. rattle him, Sam. Rattling him is dangerous. <laughs> Just uh, let know, him I sit know. soundly and securely in the back of your mind. I know. Um, so in, I think it was 2014, this, this scientific study came out that was assessing the danger of cracks, little microfractures that had developed in the David's ankles and lower legs. And people had known about these cracks since the 1800s, when people first started looking seriously at the David and worrying about uh, his health, because he originally stood outside in the center of Florence and took quite a lot of punishment from rain and birds and carts slamming into him. And he was studied pretty carefully by people back then. And, what, and one thing they noticed were these cracks. And... They were the result, actually, of him leaning slightly out in the square. Uh, the, the way the block is carved, his center of gravity is a little bit off, um, his vertical center from the center of the base. So if he's leaning at all, it puts quite a lot of stress on his ankles, and that's what happened over time. But speaking of shaking the David, one of the ways these restorers, uh, who were so worried about him, tried to assess the damage back before we had modern science was they actually physically beat him on the head and shoulders, um, to see how much he moved because of, of the unstable ankles. Right. And uh, his movement actually made them very worried after they finished beating him. Uh, so that was part of, of what eventually got him moved indoors and, and more upright and more stable. But the cracks are still there. I mean, we can't go in and fix tiny micro cracks in marble. So the question now is how dangerous are they? And in, two, are they? And in 2014, these scientists did a study where they determined by swirling around all these little tiny David replicas in centrifuges at various angles, <laughs> that the ankles actually were pretty dangerous, and that if he, if he leaned, 15 degrees was their number. They said it may even be less due to the compromised nature of the marble. He would actually crack and fall over. And when something that big and heavy and marble hits the floor, we know it essentially just explodes, so the David would be no more. Um, this set off a kind of a crisis in the global media. There were articles in The Guardian and the LA Times and everywhere else saying, oh my gosh, the David might fall. We need to do something. Um, there was actually a spate of earthquakes around Florence um, not long after that that made people even more worried. None of them hit Florence directly, but people said, we've got to take care of this. And the culture minister actually said, it's like our number one priority to put a new base under the David under his famous pedestal, it's an anti-seismic base, and it will move, it will oscillate during any tectonic disturbance, and that will keep him from tilting, and that will be enough to keep him from falling over. Everyone kind of agreed on that. It wasn't even terribly expensive, and yet, two years later, no movement has been made whatsoever on this project. The David still stands on these cracked ankles on his old rigid pedestal, so um, he's still... I mean, he's still in some danger from those those very old ankle cracks. And the anti-seismic base is basically a, it's 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 in bureaucratic turnaround, right? I mean, there's 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 nobody yeah. who's willing to commit resources to it. Yeah, when I went there, I went there in the summer of 2015 to speak with museum directors and restorers and various people, and and the director of the academia told me we could start this project tomorrow. I've spoken with the people. We've worked out the logistics. It's just I need the go-ahead from the Italian government. And they, don't, they didn't want to give it to him because they were about to do this huge bureaucratic restructuring and bring in new directors. And the feeling was 
they wanted to take credit for saving the David and not let this guy do it right before he stepped out the door and not let some outside organization come in and do it. It was a point of Italian pride. They needed to save the David. And meanwhile, it's been two years since all this happened and nothing has happened. And and now the only thing watching over it is the lonely sentinel smart brick. I love the detail That's of right. the smart oh, brick. Yes, you have to tell the story of the smart brick. That, that was, that's the title of this week's show because it was one of our favorite phrases in the, in the article. The smart brick is just this, I mean, I just noticed it admiring the David when I was there once. It's just this putty-colored plastic brick that sits on the back of the David's pedestal. It says on it, smart brick, new, fast, easy, smart. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to me, that's like, that would be advertised on TV in The Simpsons. I love the smart brick. Exactly. And it... Um, its job is to measure the kind of vital statistics of the David, his angle of lean, his, I think, his temperature, all kinds of different things. So it gives the illusion of kind of comfort that, that modern science is watching over this high Renaissance masterpiece. But one of the things I found when I talked to the director of the museum was he said, out of frustration, the smart brick had been turned off. Because everyone knew what needed to be done. Everyone knew the risk of the ankles at this point. Um, everyone knew the next step. And so there was no point in monitoring all these, all these little statistics. And so the smart brick had just been shut down. Uh, and I spoke with the new director of the museum who replaced him, and, and she said that the smart brick is still turned off. So it's, it's sitting there as this kind of signifier of safety and monitoring, but it's doing nothing. So we've we've gotten to the flaws and the imperfections of the David, and, and I think we detoured you off in this direction when you were starting to talk about re-encountering the David as a grown-up uh, and perhaps a less idealistic one with all of this information in mind. And, you know, the essay is about da- the David, but it's also about you and how you're thinking about perfection and ambition and various other shuns changed over the course of your life. I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about that, about what it was like to be back in front of that ideal with a few more decades under your belt and a lot more knowledge about the flaws of marble. Yeah, that was interesting. I have to actually give credit to the editor-in-chief of the Times Magazine, Jake Silverstein, who um, read an early draft in which I think I was suppressing a lot of this, a lot of this personal drama that surrounded the David in my life um, because I was trying to be news magazine. And he said, I feel like there's a deep personal essay about perfection and imperfection and neurosis and that, that wants to get out and we need to bring it out here. So um, that was the impetus for that. And it's always great when your uh, editor tells you to be more neurotic. I know. (laughs) Right. How liberating. It was such a nice surprise. And he also said, uh, and I feel like there, maybe there's some other thinker about perfection who um, could come in here and kind of echo against the existence of the David. And that to me was immediately, I said, oh, of course, Dostoevsky, because he's this other lifelong influence on me. And in many ways, the kind of polar opposite of the David and any ideal of human perfection. Because in Dostoevsky's work, you find you find this portrait of humanity that is so complex um, and so riddled with imperfections and the kind of radical acceptance of all of those imperfections in a really complex way and in a way that I find, um, you know, despite its ugliness and its chaos and all that, I find it really uplifting, actually, in the end. So, yeah, I mean, I came back as a nearly 40-year-old man and... and um, 
you know, I have had success in my writing to a degree. I'm a, I'm a employed magazine writer, which is wonderful and lucky, but it's a very different thing from what I had imagined when I was 20 years old. And I have a family that I take daily joy in, um, which is not something that I prioritized when I was 20 years old either. And so just the shape of my life is very different from what I thought it would, what I fantasized about back then. And, you know, I did what 30, 30 somethings do. And I went to therapy and I got to the bottom of my mania for perfection and glory and all that. And I realized all the damage that was underneath it. And, um, so there's this great phrase that the scientists use in describing the weakness of the David's ankles, which is an eccentricity of the loads. That is that the load of gravity sort of hits in different ways on different parts of the statue. And that is what causes the tension. And so I sort of took that phrase and ran with it in the essay uh, to describe myself. There was an eccentricity of the loads between this fantasy of perfection and the reality that my life ended up being. And, um, you know, trying to square that eccentricity is part of growing up, I guess, part of being an adult. Yeah. Um, so, Sam, one last question. If the smart yeah. brick popped open and a jack-in-the-box came out uh, bearing the face of Dostoevsky and nudged it just so that it fell over and smashed, <laughs> to, smither- and smashed to smithereens, would you feel as though part of you were annihilated along with it, or would you feel a secret exhilaration? <laughs> I would feel both of those things simultaneously. Uh, it would be such a tragedy if the David ever fell. I mean, I, I really envy the people who haven't seen it yet. Um, and I really encourage anyone listening to make a special trip to Italy and go see the David. Uh, because for me, it was the most powerful encounter I've ever had with a work of art. And I think it remains so to this day with all these caveats and, and all this complexity that I now load onto it. Uh, it remains a really formative encounter with the work of art and the most impressive object I've ever seen with my eyes. Um, so I would mourn the downfall of that beautiful, quote-unquote, perfect thing. Um, but a part of me would feel like uh, this is the nature of life. Things break. Everything will end. I will end. You will end. Um, so it's fitting in a way that, that the David too will end. Mm-hmm. True, except Peter Thiel won't end. All right, the essay is David's ankles. <laughs> the essay is David's ankles: How imperfections could bring down the world's most perfect statue. Sam, it's a, been a huge fan of yours for a long time. This is a real tour de force. It's a wonderful essay. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking uh, to us about it. Thanks a lot. The feeling is mutual. No one doubts that some children's books are great, but it's the kind of greatness that often looks so intuitive, so breezy, so slight that it can seem deceptively simple to pull off. So writes Laura Bennett on uh, Slate Magazine. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, So that was a little bit of setup for um, a kind of uh, betise that you and other Slate editors engaged in, in which you staged a competition with strict rules and some no-nonsense judges, in which a bunch of Slate editors tried to make a children's book in, what was it, in one hour or something? One hour. Ruthless. It was ruthlessly uh, policed by, uh, by Julia Turner. Um, so Just tell me a little bit about the, about the uh, ground rules here and then uh, what happened. Oh, well, it was uh, high pressure, high stakes. We had, it was six Slate editors and writers, and we sat in a room together. We had uh, white paper, Crayola markers, scissors and construction paper, 
And we had a panel of expert judges from the world of children's literature who gave us beforehand a moral and an animal protagonist that were sort of delivered to us in a the envelope please situation by our editorial assistant when the hackathon started. And then we all had an hour to make our own kids' books using that moral, that protagonist, and the tools at our disposal. Mm. Okay. And this includes writing and illustrating, we should say. Absolutely. Writing and illustrating. And you had to have a title page and a title for your uh, for your, for your kids' book. Okay. I, I love the two judges totally independent of one another said i'm disturbed by the idea of a hedgehog as a piece of sporting equipment i also loved that it was there were so many moments i our judges were so good by the way i never could have anticipated but so in reading their reports on our kids book there were so many moments when i became newly aware of how uh Basically, I mean, the considerations that go into children's literature are obviously far more complicated and multifarious than I ever would have thought. And the idea that a child could be, uh, you know, negatively developmentally affected by seeing a tiny, sweet animal used as sporting equipment, that's something that'll stay with me forever. The Hedgehog is the Ball. In Dan Coyce's book, The Hedgehog Becomes the Baseball. Yes, and, uh, and in my book, the hedgehog becomes a bowling ball. Uh, <laughs> volition, he is. It's a it's a moment of triumph for him, but he is indeed a bowling ball. Last violent contact at the outset of right. the bowling, but That's true. but similar at the end, uh, so possibly more. Right. Uh, we should give a little slate history on this. So this this project had many titles, and I think it was your idea, right, Laura, to yes. do this as part oh, of our indeed. our kids like pop up blog that we've talked about a bunch this month on the show, but um, slate has a grand tradition of hackathons, which is one of the things we called this, in that uh, we had a competition in like the late 90s where we got a bunch of really great journalists to to prove what great hacks they were. So hack is a combination like snide term of denigration and admiration among journalists, which is like how quickly can you toss off something plausible uh, on deadline? And I think they were each given some kind of slaty argument to prosecute and some small chunk of time and it was like you know i forget michael lewis and malcolm gladwell and people striving to to uh show their chops in that case there is actually a tradition that journalists should toss off works that seem more competent and polished than they are there is no actual tradition (laughs) that people should be able to write and illustrate an entire children's book in an hour and i'm sure dana that your partner a uh, children's uh, literature author was perhaps offended and and shocked by this exercise. <laughs> I will say that I think that the theory of the case is that parents and people who read a lot of children's literature, there is that kind of naive, dumb, like my, you know, I could do this, my kid could do this feeling about that, that people sometimes have about abstract art of like, how complicated is this really? And you sort of get exposure to this literary world which is deceptively simple. So the as someone who's spent a ton of time reading children's literature over the last three years, that was part of the appeal of it to me, was trying to, f- to figure out the mechanics of this thing that I spend so much time consuming but that I've never tried to make. Right. Um, and then I yeah. think, so there's there's a little bit of the, the how complicated is it of the regular readers. And then there's also the frustration of a reader and constantly reading books that stink. There are many wonderful children's books, but I think... Not all people who make children's literature are as smart-seeming as our judges, who strongly discouraged us all from ever going on to make children's literature <laughs> right. again. It should be. Yeah. We can – no spoilers here um, to, to reveal that uh, none of us has a grand career ahead of us in this. But, um, you know, I think the theory of the case is not that everybody thinks this is easy, but what do you learn about this form from trying to do it yourself? And I think there's something particularly fun about uh, us, a group of 
you know, hubristic, crafty, uh, whimsical, right brain slate uh, people who love an activity and are inclined to think, oh, put us in a room together with some supplies and we'll get creative. We can make a kid's book. And then just seeing us get knocked down many pegs. Um, <laughs> by I have our, to say, though, I know. think that on the illustration side, I mean, writing a children's story, I know from experience of living with someone who agonizes over these, you know, 32-page picture books for years is really, really difficult. But I felt like a lot of illust- there was a lot of illustrative verve that you guys came up with. Julia's little cutout style. She had kind of a collage hedgehog for her style. And Dan Coyce revealed this great cartooning ability, totally. these sort of disappointed ball-playing animals standing around. I-, I thought y'all's illustrations were pretty great. It is really fun to do craft projects with your colleagues when you're, you only ever see and are seen by your colleagues hunched in front of a computer typing words. I guess sometimes we sit in front of microphones and speak words, but as a verbal group at Slate and uh, appreciating our like pen and scissor craft was yes. surprising. And also, delightful. I found it so interesting to see how inextricably uh, each of us, all of the books were. So, uh, you know, Gabe Broths, for instance, was sort of languid and wry and very Rothian. Mine, well, mine was kind of spunky and an overambitious use of time, and uh, also incredibly the like type A in the prose in a like a really anal and overall. Was yours way. the one written in verse? Oh, it sure was. I think we it better sure read was. my my book only yeah. has like eight words in it, so it won't be very good for a podcast. But I think we probably should read a couple verses of yes. Laura's book here on the show. Oh gosh, Laura's well, book was had the best title of any of ours. It was called Prickle, and the names of the two hedgehog brothers in her story. Did we say what the animal and the moral were? The, anim- the anim- oh right, it was a hedgehog. Or this a little bit belatedly, but as a hedgehog, and the moral was when one door closes, another door opens. So. Yeah. Laura had these two brothers, Prickle uh-huh. and Spike. You can guess which one was beleaguered and needed his self-esteem boosted and which one was the hurly-burly go-getter. Uh, um, oh, so hurly-burly. But uh, read, read, read a few choice verses, please, oh, Laura. Well, sure. I would be glad to. It is indeed called Prickle, and it begins, Prickle the Hedgehog had only one dream. He wanted to make the hedgehog swim team. Spike, his big brother, was king of the lake. He'd swim perfect laps, then yell, piece of cake. The other hogs cheered as Spike paddled past, while Prickle watched awestruck, his heart beating fast. I'll leave that as a cliffhanger. (laughs) Who knows where the story will go? Well, we've already spoiled that it goes to the bowling lanes. That's, (laughs) That's right. That is a big twist. And I would also add, just in terms of how much these books represented our personalities, that Julia's was... Uh, colorful and fun and also just outrageously efficient. Just a very good use of resources. <laughs> uh, I'm honored. I'm honored that that was your conclusion. Well, I also diva-like demanded that there be construction papers because I cannot draw I, and I didn't want to make something ugly because I don't like making things that are ugly. And I felt well, that with construction paper, I could make something non-ugly. You were right. You really played to your strengths. It's a good thing none of you saw me draw. <laughs> um We obviously had a lot of fun doing this. I'm curious, Dana and Steve, what you made of this project as non-participants slash non-participants married to children's book uh, (laughs) or or non-participants who are partners with professionals at this exact task. Well, well, if nothing else, the Rorschach possibilities here are really (laughs) kind of endless. Um, I love the sadistic streak that it brought out, the latent sadistic streak. Um, uh, But... um, Dana, I'm curious just to hear you talk a little bit more about what it must be like to agonize over 
a, a piece of writing that the rest of the world mistakes for being kind of easy in a way. I mean, right. Isn't that the, that's the lure here that every celebrity thinks they can write one. Every parent gets it into their head that they can write one. You know, how much of a genius did it take to create and make way for, for ducklings? And yet on any inspection, closer inspection whatsoever, you determine that it t- takes quite a genius to um, make something as enduring as that. Yeah. I guess it's, that's why my response to this experiment was sort of, it was clearly divided on the sort of parlor game side of just getting to see how people who don't usually draw and tell children's stories try to draw and tell children's stories. It was lots of fun. It was like sitting around watching your friends play a parlor drawing game. From the point of view of let's explore what it's like to be a children's book author. I mean, when I when I told my partner who is an illustrator and author of children's books about this this topic and this game on Slate and sending the link, I don't know if he's read it yet, but the, the sound of, of head thwacking against desk was, was nearly audible because I mean, this is a person who for years as long as I've known him is always approached by people at parties who have a great idea for a children's book or can I please send you my manuscript for a children's book because I'm just sure that it's just seconds away from publication and the the seriousness with which that craft is taken compared with the seriousness with which the craft of creating work for adults is taken is strangely imbalanced, even though on the surface it would seem like, well, obviously it's harder, especially if you're looking to write and illustrate your own book, as you guys were, which is actually a, a fairly rare thing in the children's book world, right? I mean, it's not that often that you find somebody who can both write something really condensed and, you know, and, and original, and at the same time, create the appropriate illustrations for it. You might even be able to to create some kind of illustrations, but maybe not the one that the publisher feels goes with that book. In other words, the amount of craft that goes into these things is at least equal to, if not greater than, you know, trying to create a 400-page novel for adults. And so, so, Living with someone who, you know, spends hundreds of hours photographing marshmallows in a diorama. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't have marshmallows on the table. We knew there was something missing. And and just the amount of, like, wasted creativity, like, incredible ideas that have to be chucked out the window because, you know, there's already a book like that or it's, you know, whatever, the the shadow is wrong. I mean, just the, the, the amount of detail that goes into every one of those spreads. Even, for example, I think of all of y'all's illustrations, I think Dan Coyce was the only one who did spreads. In other mm-hmm. words, he had some illustrations that went across the gutter of the page, right, which is a very common thing in children's picture books. And something that, you, reading them as a parent, you sort of take in stride. But when you make one, you don't necessarily think about the image as spreading across two pages, right? So even something as simple as that. So all those sort of craft elements are things that, you know, I guess come into play when you start making a book that you had never thought about before. Anyway, I mean, I just, I guess I want to say, even though I loved this article and it was lots of fun to read, that I was a little bit offended on behalf of all the children's (laughs) book writer and illustrators I know who spend their lives on this stuff. I will say I was quite heartened by some of the response I saw on social media from people who work in children's lit saying, I was prepared to be so offended by this, and then I actually found it quite um, to be the rare piece about children's literature that does justice to how hard it is and how foolish you can look while doing it. And I also like that the judges were so merciless, so none of them were like, (laughs) good effort. You know, good, nice work in well, the hour did, you allotted. They, they found something yeah. nice to say about each they book. Tried. But there they was tried something nice hard. to say about each book. And as I say, like, it was a totally fun experiment. And you all fully admitted with humility that, you know, you had no idea what you were doing and that this is obviously not the way it's done. So I thought it was all very playful and fun. But I just, I hope people do realize when they p- pick up, you know, even just some simple book that's got one word per page, an alphabet book, you know, 
that chances are a huge number of discarded manuscripts and other decisions and other possibilities have been rejected in order for that thing to exist. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, part of what appealed to me about uh, throwing my hat in the ring when Laura proposed this project is just I my admiration for truly great children's books, which are both uh, more numerous than Just Make Way for Ducklings, but rare in the scope of what I read has grown so much over the past few years. So to try is not an, I I didn't see trying as an act of hubris, but an act of understanding. Like, okay, now I feel like I know what I like and I know what I don't like what, what happens when I try my hand at it. And the thing that I found, I guess I found two things. I mean, I did, I've succeeded in not making something ugly. Like I made something that was visually pleasing to me, which I was happy about because that's hard to do for me with pen and ink. But but I sacrificed story to that and ended up making like a ruthless Hobbesian defense of the caste <laughs> system, basically, where like giraffes can eat giraffes eat leaves from trees and don't share with hedgehogs and hedgehogs have to stick with the food they find on the ground and that's, fine. And that's just how it is <laughs> so and the most brutal image of all the, the the giraffe butt as the giraffe disappears from your page <laughs> cruelly walking away that's such a good one no no help to the hedgehog so anyway it's very hard to control all these factors at once and i got dinged by several judges for having there be no um, character arc for my story. You know, just like, you know, my husband who works in television is like, this is a note he gives all the time. There needs to be a thing that your protagonist does to effectuate the change in the book. And Wasn't it just a deus ex machina that got him his... All my de- hedgehog did was turn around dejected and find a strawberry. <laughs> so it was a mere shift in direction, which I can't muster a great defense of. That's a, a good moral. Turn around and you might find a strawberry. And that was the Stick most... to your own level, bud. <laughs> That was the best note I thought. It was so interesting. The note we got from judges was that your hedgehog can't just poke his nose. I mean, that no, that makes it sound more active than it was. Like <laughs> the strawberry literally materialized. Finding um, a strawberry yeah, yeah. does not equal plot, right? And that a child has cannot. And you know, we talked a little bit about does a children's book, does a really good one need a moral? Does it need a lesson? And a moral maybe sounds it too, makes it sound too sort of pat. And neat. Like, I don't know if a moral is quite the right way to put it, but there's a there's, you know, a lesson seems like some kind of lesson seems valuable to me. Or it or just an arc, a theme like a I think theme might even be the way to do it. But it because even lesson feels a little preachy. And I think kids books are best when they're didactic or best when they're not didactic. But that's the other thing I feel like I learned is the books I admire most are the ones that have just these specific flights of weirdness. and feel like they come from these very specific minds. I mean, one of the obvious examples is Marie Sendak's In the Night Kitchen, which is like this dream sequence of a kid like swimming through milk and flying a bread plane and these menacing bakers. Like, it's a very specific, strange book. But even in more prosaic books, like the even Make Way for Ducklings, which just feels like an unimpeachable classic, there's all these little grace notes and details in there that feel that don't feel like a pedantic story getting trotted out. There's the police officer sharing the peanuts and there's, you know, the names of the ducklings, which are all alphabetical. Jack, Cack, Lack, Mac, Knack, Uwak, Pack, and Quack. Uh, and uh, the the moment where Mrs. Mallard walks along with a little extra swing in her waddle, which I always think of when I'm feeling very proud of my boys. Uh, finding the balance between a, tr- a real plot, a plot held to the same standards of like adult plots that has like interesting mechanics and stuff for the people to do and a theme that's comprehensible for children and then leaving room for the the little specific 
grace notes of vision and thinking that actually make these books sing. Obviously, you can't do it in an hour when you're an idiot who doesn't know anything <laughs> about it. But like, even just beginning to look at the mountain with the idea of, mm-hmm. of how you would climb it, the the art of balancing those things became even more apparent. To right. Me. You have to start thinking about the art of compression, really extreme compression, right? 32 pages to tell an entire story with a character. Right. And how do you balance compression and weirdness? Like weirdness needs room, but the stories need compression. And that that tension was the most interesting Well, in a place me. that that can happen, that again, it might take a certain combination of author and illustrator to make work out, is that the illustration cannot just bear out what the words say, which all due respect, most of y'all's illustrations did. But the illustration can bring new information or, you know, add some some different depth to the experience. Right. I mean, I learned a lot from attempting my illustrations, which were hilarious, scraggly little, uh, you know, pathetic looking hedgehogs. But one note that I got from the judges was, you already had your hedgehog sitting on a bed. Don't put him on a bed again. That you want to sort of find as <laughs> right. many sneaky and vivid ways to show the you know the full world that this these characters inhabit, and that you definitely don't want to sort of duplicate scenes. Oh, that is a huge bugbear of the person I live with: duplicated backgrounds. And I have to say <laughs> that Mo Willems, one of Julia's favorite children's book authors, is someone that he always gets on for that. Like, oh, a peach background with a character standing against it. <laughs> that was original Mo Willems. <laughs> um, Steve, what did you make of this? We've had the Dana download from the house of the expert uh but as someone who's who's merely a reader and, and a, a reader some years removed from the kind of picture book we were make, making given the ages of your children uh what do you think of all this i mean it just it reminded me once again that that it's not the intrinsic activity that makes anything difficult it's the sheer number of people trying against which only a few become distinctive right so you know people foolishly hear hip-hop and they think well no one's singing no one's playing a musical instrument it's so easy you know anyone could do it or someone looks at a rothko and says well you just threw paint on a you know or a pollock or whatever you just threw paint on a canvas you didn't what where's the technical skill in that but the truly hard thing isn't mastering a, a skill it's learning how to turn anything into a into a medium for distinctive self-expression that's really genuinely meaningful to the person who's um, who's experiencing it, and it just doesn't matter whether it's short or long or for kids or for adults or you know whether the illustrations are exquisitely rendered or um, somehow simplistic. Um, it's somehow you know the uniting of these disparate elements into something, um, and I think looking at each one of these highly idiosyncratic abominations and realizing <laughs> adorable abominations <laughs> adorable abominations and realizing how wide of the mark uh, an average and you know the the intelligent person's uh, stab at it could be really brought home that a kid's book is a you know genuinely it was a work of art i mean think about also i mean they tend to divide into classics and oblivion more starkly than almost anything else i mean the because the survival value of all things always takes place at the point of contact between one and generation and another and of course the most acute point of contact between generations is children's literature where the kid is totally dependent upon the delivery system of the parent and you know uh, it's just interesting. I mean, you, you, you know, after a period of about 10 years, something's either completely gone or a classic. And so average efforts are just going to be held 
constantly up to Dr. Seuss, make way for ducklings and, uh, you know, where the wild things are. And these are incredible. When you think about it, in- incredibly high standards. Right. I mean, that's, and that's why children's publishing is so different from adult publishing in that the backlist is by far the strongest selling, right? I mean, people are not going yeah. out looking for new children's books when they walk into a, a bookstore looking for a book for their kid. Generally, they're looking for a really good children's book, and that will be either one that they remember or one that, you know, has has been passed down and stood the test of time. All right. Well, you can scroll through all of the uh, entries and uh, watch a video about the making of uh, at Slate.com. The piece is called How Hard Is It to Make Your Own Children's Book? Slate Editors and Writers Tried. Thanks a lot, Laura Bennett. That was really fun. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana Stevens. What do you have? Well, as you all know, and I'm sure are as sad about as I am, we lost the great hilarious, wonderful comedian Gene Wilder this week. He died at age 83. And uh, the news of that of that death broke a little bit too late for us to do him as a, a topic on the show. We just didn't have time to prepare such a such a huge and hilarious career. So in lieu of an entire segment, I have a small Gene Wilder-related endorsement, which is this DVD documentary called Pure Imagination. It's a little featurette that came out on a 2001 issue of the movie, a reissue for its 40th anniversary, because Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory came out in 1971. And uh, and I've always loved this. Every time I watch the movie with my daughter, she wants to watch this 15 or 20 minute movie afterwards, because it has not only great interviews with Gene Wilder, which were done in 2001. So, you know, many years after after the movie and him remembering his being cast and making it. Also interviews with the director, interviews with all the children grown up and you get to see what they all grew up to be. And they're all wonderful, particularly Charlie Bucket, who just grew up to be the most awesome guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, and a lot of sort of backstage making of, etc. But uh, I, I won't spoil the best moments, the best Gene Wilder moments in this documentary. I will just say that all of the kind of humanity and strangeness and gentleness and hilarity that he pours into that performance as Willy Wonka comes out of him, Gene Wilder himself, the, the much older Gene Wilder talking about the movie. And so it's it's a, it was a real tearjerker to watch it again yesterday. I think I'm going to probably do a little blog post today on Slate about some moments in this documentary, Pure Imagination. But in the meantime, you can find it on YouTube. Unfortunately, you can only find it in a very ugly version where someone appears to have filmed their TV set while it was running. But we'll see if we can find a better online link for Pure Imagination and put it on our show page. That sounds great. I love that. That does sound great. Uh, Julia, what do you have? All right. Well, I have a little mini endorsement pegged to our conversation with Sam Anderson before I do my real endorsement, which is just that one of the things I loved most about reading Sam's piece is that I've been a unwitting David snob, having never seen it, because I was once told by some art historian or teacher of mine or historian or somebody pointed out to me that if you look at the Davids of Donatello, uh, Michelangelo and Bernini, the iconicness of Michelangelo's David is actually kind of at odds with the story of David. The story of David is not about a 17-foot-tall, perfect human specimen. In fact, David is not a giant. That is the point of that story. He slays a giant not by being a giant, but by being scrappy with his slingshot. And I sort of bought into that argument without thinking about it very hard. And because Rome is one of my favorite cities, I've been a few times to the Bernini Museum there And Bernini was a Baroque sculptor post-Michelangelo who was incredibly fluid with marble and did much smaller, mostly much smaller pieces, uh, but that are, it's like photorealism with marble. And he has a 
uh, sculpture of David that I've always held to be sort of the best David because it's this like tense, whipped, turning about, mid slingshot pull, wild eyed, crazy haired, just incredibly fluid chunk of marble that catches a tiny, scrawny David mid uh, Davidian effort to bring down the giant as opposed to the kind of languid, admire my physique. Surely I've got this, David, <laughs> of Michelangelo's David. Uh, and I, seeing the statue anew through Sam's piece, I found myself questioning this sort of received narrative that I had about the beauties of the Bernini statue, which I still love, and seeing in uh, Michelangelo's David the that the languor of it is not haughty. It, it It's... It's this moment of pause before the effort and uh, that there's something great about turning the scrappy, the scrappy small one into the giant is its own commentary. Especially at the moment that kind of humanism, Renaissance humanism is is emerging, right, or is kind of fully effulgent at that moment. It's, it's it, this stuff that Sam was saying about David being this kind of ideal model of the human, right? I mean, it makes it makes sense in a way that he would be not scrawny and not defeatable looking. Yeah. Anyway, just it's it's interesting to think about our ideas of that story in addition to the sculptures themselves. And so I commend you all to go also to Rome and see the Bernini David, which is also great, but was also thankful to Sam for opening my eyes to the the a different way to think about the Michelangelo one. But that was more of a tag on the Sam Anderson conversation. I actually have something else I want to endorse this week, which is the first slate. Plus, I have been collaborating with our sometime guest and wonderful books critic, Laura Miller, on a project she's doing, a Slate Academy called The Year of Great Books, where she pairs up with a different Slatester every so often and asks them about the gaping cultural lacuna, the gaping horrible lacuna in their reading uh, offers four books that would help fill the hole and then let Slate Plus members vote on which book they should read. So I am the person who's up this summer and we presented listeners with four books, Madame Bovary, Dostoevsky's The Idiot, uh, Mill on the Floss, and Anthony Trollope's Barchester Towers. And I read it over my vacation and I am meeting with Laura Miller the night that we tape, so it'll be too late for listeners of this podcast to attend. Uh, but we're doing a live discussion of it in New York uh, that will appear as a podcast on Slate Plus later this month. But regardless of whether you sign up for Slate Plus and listen to that discussion, you should definitely read Barchester Towers by Anthony Trollope. It is so funny, so wry. I don't know how I'd gotten through my education without ever reading any Trollope. As I confessed to Laura, when we were discussing the topics, I'd always assumed Trollope was French because of the way his name is spelled. Isn't it spelled kind of Frenchish? <laughs> she was just laughing because he's so just. Yes. And once you read him, you're like, oh my God. He's just so English, fucking yeah. British. He's like the most British <laughs> dude in the world. He's as British as P.G. Woodhouse. He's as, uh, as, British as, uh, as British as Flaubert. <laughs> yeah, as Flaubert. Exactly. They were all British. Dostoevsky, too, actually. <laughs> from Manchester. Um, but but uh, the book, here's my pitch for Trollope, the preview of my discussion tonight. It's a little bit. Jane Austen-ish in that it is a lot about manners and mores, but it's very gimlet-eyed. So there's a lot of drawing rooms and country manners and uh, intersections between the not quite rich and the little bit richer. Laura Miller described it as a workplace comedy set in the Episcopal Church, which is accurate, I think. Um, it has an Austenian eye for 
human nature that, again, is both um, astute but wry. So it's sincere in its wisdom about how humans comport themselves, but also just kind of trying to make you laugh at how dumb we all are and succeeds admirably. Uh, And then it also has this thread of being um, a little bit arch about its own construction in a way that seems beyond its moment. There are many asides from the uh, narrator to the reader about, you know, the the potential suitors for a young woman. And there's a moment where the narrator essentially says, don't worry about it. She's not going to marry either of these guys. But, uh, you know, usually I it wouldn't behoove a narrator to reveal all those things at this particular moment. But I'll just let you in. Don't worry. Prolepsis. <laughs> exactly. So there's many kind of amusing examples of that. And uh, it's really funny. So if, like me, you've never read Trollope and you thought he was French, be warned. He's the Britishiest Brit ever. He's very funny. You should pick him up. And uh, I will also say that Laura Miller's recommendation, three, two, and I will also say that at some point this month, Laura Miller recommended to me that I listen to the audiobook of it, which is narrated by Simon Vance, Dana's favorite reader. Um, And I, I did do some listening in addition to some reading of the book, and he is wonderful. So that's a good way to get introduced to both Trollope and Simon Vance. And Laura, in fact, interviewed Simon Vance for a special Slate Plus bonus podcast uh, about his work and how he comes up with his voices. I can't wait to hear that. It's really great. Um, so my recommendation is Barchester Towers by Anthony Trollope, a Brit. Oh, fantastic. All right. Well, um, firmly in the sky is blue and uh, Steve is miles behind the curve. Uh, I'm going to endorse the novels of Elena Ferrante. <laughs> Have you read them all now? <laughs> the- the, the, I, from her name, I assume she was Irish. Turns out, no, <laughs> she's Italian. Uh, I've only, <laughs> I've only read the first one. But as when I get a Julia Turner snort, my week has been made. <laughs> I love it. I, from what I understand, everyone who's gotten hung up in them at all has gotten hung up in Volume One, and then goes on, persists, and and discovers he or she loves them. I loved Volume One, and I assume I'm only going to become more rapturous as I read further. I never got stuck in volume one. I never wondered, you know, why I was hearing about Greek and Latin or shoes. Um, I think it's, I, you know, Jhumpa Lahiri has a blurb on it. She says it's an unconditional masterpiece. That is precisely my feeling as well. I, I think this is going to slot right in uh, to the canon of of novels. I think there's something very interesting going on that, we, I, I'm one of my weird little hobby horses is dyads. I just think it's really, you know, so Beethoven and Mozart, Lennon, McCartney, these things that Dostoevsky and and um, and uh, uh, Tolstoy. I just think it's really interesting that Ferrante and Kanausgard are um, both uh, using this faux naive. Is it a memoir? Is it a novel style to tell a life story inclusive of all of its banality and self-concocted melodrama it's a really interesting moment that that's a a literary mode at the same time the novel for tv is becoming a kind of quasi-literary mode or the closest that hollywood comes to taking movies seriously as art um we're ready for things that sprawl but that are not filled with a ton of artifice i think in some weird way setting all that aside no need to go meta here i was beyond taken with it i mean i i just thought it i just think it works on so many different levels i mean it works on the level of exploring anatomizing a 
friendship between girls coming of age. I love I love the writing of it. I I love that both Knausgaard and Ferrante can be literary and self-consciously write with a sense of of flourish and a sense of language's possibilities at the same time that they're unafraid to drop that and be lucid and quite simple. I couldn't stop reading it. I'm convinced it is a great work of literature. Um, I don't know that I've read anything that contemporary that I have thought that highly of probably in my life. I can't wait to continue. Anyway, there's my Ferrante. Um, I'm, you've all read it already, so this is completely redundant, and I'm um, banally hammering at uh, feelings you've all already had, but um, t- to anyone out there who hasn't, get on your horse. Uh, the time has come. It's it's unbelievable. I want to discuss my favorite moment in it, but I don't want to spoil anything. Well, maybe we should do a Slate Plus spoiler special Ferrante discussion at some point. I've read the first two. Have you read them, Dana? I read the whole thing, yeah. Oh, damn. I find, I think they're incredible, and I think the nuances of female friendship are, uh, and sort of the slipperiness and significance of those relationships to young women are really powerfully drawn in both the first and second books. But I find them so oppressive that I can only read one a year. So I read one and then I like wait a year. So I'm about Mm -hmm. due to read the third one. But there's something so stultifying about the world that she's describing and so vivid about that Mm -hmm. stultification that I when I'm out of when I'm in one, I'm very absorbed, but it's not quite pleasant. And then when I'm done, I'm like, get me some get me some drawing room farce, please. Mm-hmm. Need a little farce out here. That's strange because I actually read them. I don't know, Stephen, how you, how you will handle it, but um, but I read them essentially in a in one feverish rush. And as mm-hmm. as the experience went on, I became a more and more melancholy that I was running out of book <laughs> because I think of it mm-hmm. as one long book. And B, just I reverted to some kind of adolescent or almost feral mode of reading where I didn't care about anything else but those books and the rest of the world yes. was just an annoying imposition. <laughs> yeah. Did you feel that same yeah, thing? No. No, no, no. I felt that about uh, the only other time I've really felt that was when I was reading War and Peace. And I was like, if someone handed me a button and if I press the button, I get to exchange the rest of my life for more and more Tolstoy in installments that go off until the, you know, time of my death, I would press the button. Like, I'm ready. I just want, I want to substitute all of my future experiences for more volumes of the Neapolitan um, novels, um, which I. Does that sound an I did get Elon Musk on the horn. Maybe he can help you out. <laughs> um, but it's funny. one thing quickly, though, Julia, I think it's so interesting, the question about how you pace yourselves, because they, in a way that I admire, she has a trick from genre fiction, which is the cliffhanger. I mean, she uses it. She buttons her chapters as well as Lee Child does in the freaking Jack Reacher books. Um, and it takes nothing away from what she's doing. Um, and the whole of the, it gives nothing away to say that the volume one is is so buttoned itself. Um, so that you just want to immediately begin the second one in a way. But I then thought, no, 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 no. I have to, I have to somehow let the real colors of real life bleed back into my field of vision and remind myself I'm Stephen Metcalf, you know, not uh, Elena Greco. So I don't know when I'm going to pick up the next one, I guess is what I'm saying. That's so interesting. Right. I mean, the whole thing starts with a cliffhanger. A, a startling situation in the present that prompts the reverie. Then, in the middle of book two, I'm still just mid reverie, and the cliffhanger of the 
uh, initial chapter of the series remains. Yeah, talk about buttons. I mean, just pay attention to everything because almost every detail comes back in some crazy way over the the course of the shit. I guess I better not wait any longer because I'll probably forget the beginning. All right, well, we've now practically recorded the Slate Plus segment. Let's adjourn. (laughs) Save a little bit. (laughs) It's it's so true. Oh, I'm so sorry. All right, well, um, to be continued, but uh, Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Julia, thanks a lot. That was fun. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. Our intern is Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers, he's the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of that Panoply Network. You can check out an entire roster of very like-minded and wonderful shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. We'll see you soon. Hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look. And you'll see into your imagination.